Good evening. It's an honor to be speaking with you tonight on what many people consider to be the crux, so to speak, of the church calendar. If you know me, I you know I don't usually stretch for sports metaphors, but when Father Martin asked me if I would preach on Good Friday, I thought of a tennis ball boy being asked by a Wimbledon champion to step in and play the final set. I am overwhelmed by the responsibility of opening up the word, and I have far more compassion now for people who do this every week. This evening marks the moment in the Christian story when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross. From the outside looking in, it is an odd day around which Christians orient their belief system. You would think that if the church wanted to attract new members, that we would have chosen a more positive and encouraging symbol than a Roman instrument of torture. Isn't it counterintuitive, maybe even a bit distasteful, that Christians center their story and indeed their hope on a day when an innocent man was handed over by the crowds and leaders of his day to endure an unfair trial before being mocked and scourged and left to die alone. In their retelling of what happened on Good Friday, the Gospel writers recount all the ways in which Jesus' death was not good to everyone who witnessed it at the place outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. There is the plain brutality of the crucifixion, the overwhelming physical pain, too much for us to think on for long before shifting to more soothing thoughts. The physical agony is what artists and filmmakers tend to focus on in their depictions of Good Friday. But it's worth noting that the physical pain is not what the gospel writers emphasize in their accounts. Taken together, the gospels show us that Jesus' suffering on the cross was comprehensive, The Son of God took on all the ways that humans under the power of sin suffer and inflict suffering on each other. Jesus endured social suffering, the pain of being abandoned by one's closest friends and confidants before being taunted by a mob of strangers. Jesus wasn't given a private, noble death. His was designed to be a spectacle, a symbol of what would happen to Galilean preachers who go around claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus endured the suffering of injustice, of being a man against whom no evidence of wrongdoing could be found, yet whose life was traded for the release of a murderer. As the crowds, as as we just yelled, crucify him, taking on the role of the crowds, We hear the strains of a mob who demand justice without truth, who want payment without account. As long as someone pays, it doesn't matter who pays it. Jesus of Nazareth was the only truly righteous person who ever lived, the only human who could claim total innocence. And yet he underwent the miscarriage of justice that we see echoes of today whenever innocent life is taken violently and without recourse. 
In a profound way, Jesus also faced spiritual suffering, the suffering of being left by Abba, his father, to die. Now, this is tricky and mysterious territory. It's as mysterious as saying, every do, as we do every week, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. For we affirm that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was actively and willingly present at the cross. Jesus was not a passive victim uh, abused by the Father, as some caricatures suggest. The cross was a Trinitarian event, an event at which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were active and working in accordance. When Jesus declares, it is finished, as John the Evangelist recounts, We think of a mother who has just labored for hours to give birth. Though she is slayed by the trial of labor, she is a willing participant in the pain, for she knows that it leads to new life. And yet, in the the mystery of the cross of this moment, we also hear Jesus cry in his native Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. This is a cry from the gut. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction, as it is called, is the only word from the cross that's recorded in two of the Gospels by Mark and Matthew. Here we see that Jesus knew what it meant to feel abandoned by the Father, to suffer without deliverance. In this way, he chose on to t- he chose to take on perhaps the worst kind of human suffering, the suffering of those unknown and unnamed millions lost to history who have died senseless deaths away from their families and everyone who loves them. At the cross, Jesus identifies with all of those who have cried out to God and have not received consolation or deliverance. So what good can we say about this Good Friday? What is this ghastly display mean for us and for the whole world. The meaning of the cross has been the subject of meditation and intense debate since the early days of the church and has reached a crescendo in certain Christian circles um, with various camps staking out their positions. Amid this din and conversation, I have found a book from Fleming Rutledge, a retired Episcopal priest, called The Crucifixion, uh, to be a helpful synthesis of two motifs. I will confess to you I did not finish all 600 pages of this book before tonight, but I would certainly recommend the book uh, for a Lenten meditation to you any, uh, any time of the year. We call this Friday good because in Christ, God has accomplished two earth-shattering things that we humans were helpless to do for ourselves. One, God has paid the debt accrued by sin, the sin that results from our rebellion against God and his offer of loving relationship. We have refused that relationship to go our own way. And two, God has liberated us from the powers of sin and death, rescuing us and the whole creation from its bondage to decay, releasing us into new resurrection life. Thanks be to God. 
What does it mean that God in Christ paid the debt accrued by our sin? And why did it take the cross of all things to pay this debt? The legal and substitutionary way of talking about the cross with words like debt and owe and payment has come under scrutiny uh, for imagining God as a, a bloodthirsty ruler or an angry father lashing out at his son. Evangelistically speaking, we wonder if talking about sin and guilt and using words like propitiation and expiation among people who are new to the church might sound unloving or offensive. And yet, even in realms of society far away from traditional Christianity, most people intuit that sin is real, having profound and tragic consequences for others, and that something must be done about it. We intuit that we live in a moral universe where immoral actions have consequences. Most of you have likely seen the news stories of powerful men in various industries being held accountable for ways they have abused their power and hurt others. It is not enough, say, victims who have come forward to quickly extend forgiveness so that the accused can go about their lives and enjoy their careers as if nothing happened. We can't do this, we understand, because something actually happened to tip the moral scales. A boundary was crossed, a person's body and spirit were violated, and some debt must be paid, whether in the form of the loss of a job or a public apology or an award withheld. So too with corporate sin, which is personal sin that has seeped into our institutions and our organizational life. We think of the Flint water crisis, which is still not totally resolved, as a failure of various leaders to fulfill their duty to protect the health of the people they are trusted to serve. In this particular story, sin is not just active wrongdoing. I don't think anyone set out to to poison um, the, the citizens of Flint. Sin here is the omission of doing right, of ensuring, in this case, that a precious resource that's meant to sustain life isn't actually leading to death. At this time, the lead contamination in Flint's water has led to 15 deaths, and an estimated 9,000 children have been exposed to contamination. And we understand that the result, this was all a result of the failure of due diligence. It didn't arise from malicious intent. Still, there has been a moral failure and something must be done. And yet we also understand that any lawsuit or firing or indictment will not balance the scales of justice completely because lives have been lost and we can't pay back completely for their lives. And this is our our collective predicament. Whether or not we have harassed anyone, whether or not we have gone along with some kind of institutional cover-up or failure, every one of us shares in the guilt of wrongdoing. And every one of us is helpless to balance the moral scales much at all. Our offense is not just against our fellow uh, image bearers, although that is serious enough, but centrally against the creator and Lord of the universe, the one who created us for loving and trusting relationship with himself 
and who gives and sustains our very lives. All of us have gone our own way, and all of us contribute to the world's moral chaos because of it. While we feel that people in positions of power must be held accountable, we also intuit that we cannot divide up the world into the good people and the bad people, putting ourselves in the category of the good people, of course. As we heard earlier from Isaiah, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Paul echoes this in his letter to the Romans, where he writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And then Paul writes, but now. And he repeats this phrase several times in Romans And he's signaling that he is going to describe something totally new and unexpected breaking in to our moral reality. And this is from Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The connection between the cross and human sin is fixed emphatically in the scriptures. And this cross, this this display of suffering, is revealed to be good indeed, because it is the place where God in Christ takes care of the sin of the world once and for all. As an Anglican theologian, Austin Farr, puts it, Christ took us and associated us with his divine life, even while we struggled against him. He has wrought all our repenting in us. Even before we wanted to be reconciled to God or knew that we needed to be reconciled, God in Christ is reconciling us to himself through the giving of his own very self. He made it personal. The second reason that we can call this Friday good is because it is our day of liberation. At the cross, God in Christ has freed us from the powers of sin and death, rescuing us and the creation from its bondage to decay and bringing us into the freedom and glory of the children of God, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. Here, the cross is the epicenter of a great battle between the forces of light and darkness, between God and his holy armies and the forces of Satan and his fleeting and temporary reign in the world. By submitting to the cross, by drinking from the cup placed before him, Jesus proved himself a conqueror over every power and principality that opposes God and enslaves us, his image bearers. Here, we are not just actively complicit in sin. We are also held captive by it and are led to death because of it. There is nothing we can do on our own to free ourselves from the the rule and reign of sin. Without Christ, we are captives waiting to die. But because of his cross, we are liberated. In a way that I believe no human could have predicted or made up, 
Christ's death set us free from the power of death. By submitting to death, Jesus overcame death itself. The cross is the place where Jesus, hanging there, bloodied and beaten to a pulp, unrecognizable, is revealed to be the true king of the world. Truly, this is nothing that human minds could have invented because it runs counter to everything we tend to believe about power and authority. The man who is in very nature God made himself nothing, we read last Sunday in Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All the powers and principalities will recognize him as the true Lord. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only God could win victory through the weakness of the cross. And though we still feel the effects of sin in our earthly lives, we are free from its death grip, free to live righteous and radiant lives as the sons and daughters of God. Our citizenship has been transferred from the dominion of darkness and death over to the kingdom of God. And sin and death and evil, though they appear to have the last word on Good Friday, do not have the last word and never will again. For that, we can say that this is a very good Friday indeed. Amen.